get silly with you guys this morning, and you guys are not responding really well. You're kind of looking at me like I'm a weirdo. Well, it could be that I am, um, but uh, welcome. If you guys are uh, here for the first time, we welcome you here to Grace Church. We try to have fun while we're here at church. Um, we're having so much fun that I have a cup that's empty here, and someone didn't fill it up with anything, but I don't need it anyway, so we're going to put it right over here. But uh, we welcome you here at uh, Grace Church. We have been working on a series called Better Together. We've been talking about the importance of church, the importance of coming together as a people of God. Uh, I don't know about you, but I welcome you to a very cool day, cool welcoming day here in Maryland. Um, obviously, it is not, so I needed to bring this up to make sure I could wipe my brow because I'm going to probably sweat from the lights being on me. Um, so I just thought I'd bring this up here. Although it's not a handkerchief, I thought I'd have some fun with it. I actually just found, sweetheart, I just found my sunglasses. They were over there in the uh, back. I just, uh, boy, I'll tell you, it's great being 50. Um, but I'm forgetting a lot of things around, and um, I just happened to find my sunglasses. It was just a beautiful day. All right, so uh, we welcome you here. And these last few weeks, we've been talking about being better together. We were talking through Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Uh, the first week, we were talking about uh, being relational. Uh, we're talking about God and the fact that he is three in one, the Trinity. There's our harmonious unity that exists within the Trinity. Uh, their essence is the same. Their roles are different, being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a unity. Uh, there's a relationship. And when we came to faith in Christ, we too began a relationship with God. And then through that, we started a relationship with one another. And having this relationship together is called the church. And God himself showing forth himself, revealing himself through his son Jesus, now through salvation, we can be a people of God together in unity. And we understand that being better together means we have to work together and learn and grow together and have fun together, but also have trying times together. And through that, when we do, we learn and grow. And so we talked about, you know, having relationships and being relational. Secondly, we talked about being reverential, which being in awe of God in his presence, awe on his who he is, uh, the presence of God in we call general revelation, which means that what we see in the skies and the moon, all that he created in you and I, uh, the general revelation, what we can see with our eyes. But yet God revealing himself to us in a special way through his son, we're in awe because he performs miracles. His son performed miracles here on earth. There today, we talked last week, we showed a clip from a movie about breakthrough, about miracles happening and how God can restore a life, bring forth something that was natural that we we're going to die someday. He brought back to life people who were once dead, now alive today. But that miracles always point back to Jesus because I believe the true miracle, the only true miracle we have to understand is when God saves a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the light of his son. When he saves a person who is forgiven of his sin or her sin, and now I can have a relationship with God. I can assure you that with me, that happened 30 years ago, and it doesn't end. It doesn't end. I remember that day clearly when I gave my life to Jesus, when I trusted in the person and work of Jesus, when I knew that he forgave me of my sin, and I received the grace of God. 
Didn't understand it, but I began to learn through trials and tribulations, through struggle, when he was changing me moment by moment. And still 30 years later, he's still changing me. God is still working on me. I know the things that I do and I shouldn't do, I do. And God continues to remind me that you still need grace, son, 30 years later. And that's the beauty of God. And so what we want to talk about today is another R. Not, we talked about relational. We talked about reverential. We're going to talk about redemptive. We're being redemptive. But being redemptive in a community sense, learning to appreciate and love one another and care for each other, and what does that really mean? Wouldn't it be? Now, I've, I've learned that in the last few weeks. Uh, it's been very busy for us. Um, being 50 years old is a new adventure. I'm not kidding you when I say I just found my sunglasses. I'm learning more and more that I'm losing things. It's a daily routine that I lose my keys. I lose my glasses. My poor wife, all she hears from me every day is, oh, no, I lost my keys again. Oh, no, I lost my glasses. She's like, we need to attach it to your body somehow. And, oh, man, and, uh, and, and, and you know, now I'm losing my wallet. Can't lose my wallet. I'm a, we're about to close tomorrow on a house, and I can't lose my wallet. Well, lo and behold, I lost my wallet last week. I didn't have a chance to share that with you last week, but I share it with you this week. I'm at Home Depot. It's a Saturday night, or excuse me, a Friday night, and it's about 9.30, and I'm picking things up. Last minute, we're getting the house ready because we have to, we have to get this ready for close so that you know, the people can come in and maybe get things done. And I get home. We're working all night. It's 11.30, and I... Needed to look for my wallet. So I'm looking around for my wallet. Honey, you see my wallet? She goes, no, I didn't see your wallet. I said, okay, can't find it. So I says, okay, it's a routine. You know, I know I'm going to find it. It's somewhere in the house. But I'm combing the house four or five times. I'm just walking around in a circle, up and down the house, downstairs, basement. Where did I leave it? Where did I leave it? Where did I leave it? My son lost his wallet earlier in the day. He was getting a little frustrated. I started to get a little frustrated, but then the Lord said, pray. So I began to pray, and I'm praying, I'm walking around, I'm walking, but this is routine. And I couldn't find it. I was like, honey, I think this is it. I think I really lost my wallet this time. She's like, well, come on, let's, so they're all looking around, everyone, and Becca, I have to get Rebecca in there, because Rebecca is my finder. You know, just go, honey, honey, just get yourself together, now go find my wallet, honey. Go find my wallet. <laughs> well, she couldn't find it. I'm like, oh, no, it's really lost. Okay, so now I'm praying, and the Holy Spirit says, go to Home Depot again. I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's on the ground. Hopefully nobody picked it up. Okay, it's on the ground. Maybe it just dropped out. So I'm driving my car. Honey, I'm going. I'm breaking the law. I'm going without my license. I'm going to go. I'm going to get there. I'm going to find my wallet. The Lord's going to bless me. I go there, and I see three guys standing in front of the Home Depot at 1145 at night. And I pulled the window down. I said, you guys the night shift? On the night shift. No. So it's like, so then I said, and they're like, yeah, we're the night shift. And I said, okay, um. Anybody happen to drop a wallet tonight? Like, kind of looking at him like, I hope so. Please tell me you did. Uh, Jimmy, did we hear somebody? And I thought, yeah, I think, I think someone dropped a wallet a couple hours ago. 11.45, 9.45. I said, oh, could you? I think it's in the safe. Oh, gosh, these guys can have it in the safe. Okay, you can get in the safe? Okay, go, get in the safe. So I'm sitting there. I was like, uh, just in case you don't know who I am, I'm doing Facebook. I'm like, this is me. Facebook, they don't know me. He's like, okay. He's like... I don't really care, too. So then he comes down. He has my wallet. I'm like, thank you, Lord. I said, and he handed him. I said, dude, you're going to hand me my wallet without checking to see if it's me? 
I can't open it up, dude. It's against my, you know, rules and regulations. I'm like, well, I got to open it up. This is my wallet. I don't want you to give it to anybody. So I'm like, see, Bruno Chubb. He's like, yeah, okay, see ya. So now I'm leaving. I'm driving home, and I find my wallet. But while I was driving over there, I said, Lord, if you don't want me to be there on Sunday, I won't come. And uh, I told that to Dennis, and then he's like, well, I'm glad you came, because that wouldn't have been good for me. I said, well, dude, I was just being honest, because I had to say, Lord, if you don't want me there, I'm not going. So that happened. Then the next day, my wife and the kids had to go down south an hour to my mother-in-law's area, because they had to go to graduation party. So I said, all right, bye, see you. I'm going to get ready. A couple hours later, I'm looking for my keys. Uh, keys? Where's my keys at? Uh, I can't. Honey, did you see my keys? Oh, man, I have them. Oh, I was like, Lord, if you don't want me to go again, I won't go. I mean, you know, you're stopping every door here because you're shutting them. And Joy's like, no, I'm coming up. So she comes up, hour drive, and then has to go back down. So we're driving down, and I get here. And by the grace of God, I come here on Sunday and just happened that someone came to faith in Jesus on Sunday. And it was a beautiful thing that happened. You guys can clap. It's okay. That means someone trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I told that person last week, I'm here because of you. God brought me back because it wasn't just for everybody here. It was for that one person. Because even the Bible says that Jesus said that he left the 99 to get that one who was lost. And the beauty of it is that God is a redeeming God who redeems his people, who loves his people, who loves his creation, wants to make himself known to them. And we as his people must come together and understand the beauty of it. Because see, what would it look like for our political world to be redemptive? <laughs> what it would look like for our marriages to be redemptive? Because we fail so often. What would it look like for our families to be redemptive? What would it look like for our neighborhoods and our workplaces and all of that to be redemptive? And we have to ask that question because as the people of God, we have something different where we can shine and be different and a light to a world that's longing for something and we could be that light. So I want to just go over uh, the importance of looking at Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 and I want to talk about being redemptive. So if you have your 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 folder, or your, your worship guide here. You have an outline there, and if you'd like to fill out the blanks, the first point is really simple. It's being redemptive is grace-oriented. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. But allow me, if I can, to just read verse 42 and move on. So it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching in the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. We talked about that the first week. The importance of devotion. And then those are four things there that are important in the body of Christ. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the hand of God, they were in awe of God. They were amazed, more than amazed, they were in awe of God in his presence. And then verse 44 and 45, which we're going to be talking about this week and next week. It says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. It doesn't mean they liked everything the same. They didn't have the same preferences. Some like different kinds of music. Some like the nature. Some don't. Some like it hot. Some don't like it hot. Some like it whatever way. Cold, they don't like it cold. Whatever it is, preferences are preferences. But that's not what it's saying here. The commonality here, what's in common, is Jesus. The cross. 
And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as had any and all need. So it's nothing wrong with having your own possessions. Nothing wrong with having what you say is mine's. But the problem is, is that when we determine that it's ours and it's not for anyone else to have, that's when we have a problem. See, a redemptive community means I want to share what I have with you. It's not mine, but God's. It's not mine to keep. So it's nothing wrong in a capitalistic society, Western mindset, that we're individualistic and that we have what's ours, we set boundaries. Nothing wrong with having your own. It's when we hold it tight in and saying, I don't want anyone else to have it. It's mine. And you can't. It's mine, 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 and you can't have it. It's kind of like Daffy Duck with Bugs Money back in the day when there was this episode where Daffy Duck was going crazy saying, it's all mine, mine, and stuffing Bugs Bunny in the ground. Because he was so enamored with the fact that he wanted gold. Now, I know you think it's funny, but if you ever watch Bugs Bunny, you'd laugh at it because that's what we do sometimes with our stuff. And this is stuff, but God's saying that they were willing to share it with each other. See, the redemptive quality is saying that my car, my house, everything that I have is not mine, it's God's. And we receive that. We're redemptive people. We want to be a, a redemptive people. We're better together when we're like this. But what happens? See, where does it start from? Well, the grace of God is what we have had to understand, that redemptive quality. We know that Jesus sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. We understand that, that we were eternally separated from God. And we got to go back to the beginning for just a short moment because we have to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. If you're here for the first time and you have a Bible in front of you, it's just seated in front of you. If you can pull it out, it's on page 3. It's really simple. Page 3, you can read along with me and you can read on the screen. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is Adam and Eve. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And remember, this is where Adam and Eve committed sin. They disobeyed God. God said, do not eat of this particular tree, of the fruit on that tree. They did. He said, if you do, you will surely die. And what he was referring to was eternal separation and relationship. Later we'll find out that death does follow now. That they would not live forever at that point. They committed sin. They disobeyed God. Can you imagine if you, every time that you know you disobeyed God that you would know that you would surely die? But the grace of God is that now when we disobey, we have Jesus who, who you know, we forgives us of our sin when we confess it. But here's the thing now. God could have shut the doors of heaven being holy, justify that, and never allow another person near him. But listen, God in his mercy, in his grace, in his redemptive mindset says this. He calls out to them. And he said to the man, Adam, where are you? That is grace. He pursued Adam and Eve. Didn't have to, but he pursued them. He always pursues us. We are his, we are his, he, he's our greatest fan. He loves us and builds us up and desires for us. And he re, he's got that redemptive mindset of saying, when you mess up, I'm still here. I'm not expecting anything more from you. See, it was the grace of God that pursued him. There was a story I just read last night. This is what I think a redemptive mindset is. There's a story of a woman and her husband. She shares about this. She's vulnerable and transparent, shares a story. 
And what happened was um, her husband was coming home early one day and usually comes home around dinner every day. It's, it's routine. It's clockwork every day. But he came home early and she was excited. He was home early. She says, oh, great. He's home early. We could sit down and talk. So he walks into the house and he says, honey, I need to talk to you. Can we go in the other room? She goes, okay. So she goes in the other room and he asks her the question, did you have an affair on me? And she put up her hand. She said, oh, no, I didn't have an affair on you. He goes, I'm going to ask you again, did you have an affair on me? And she was moved with shame, and she went down with her hands, and her head just went down along with her hands. In shame, she goes like this. He sits there. She's overwhelmed. She cannot believe that she was trying to hide her sin from God, from her husband, thought if she just would wipe it away, it would all go away. And she didn't know what to do, and she was overwhelmed. She wanted to leave. She drives away, feeling unworthy to even be her, be the wife for this man, or to be a child of God. She comes back hours later, and a husband has another question and says, do you want to stay? He asked. She said, and I'm going to read this from her article. She said this. She goes, I didn't know how to answer. All I wanted to do was stay with my family, to turn back the clock one year, back to a time where my wife, being a wife and a mom, was all that I knew and all that I wanted to be. But I was unworthy to be a wife, a mother, and a child of God. How could I stay in a place where I didn't belong? How could I ever be on the surface again, live on the surface again? How could I ever be trusted to love? I can't, I said. I just can't. Again, he said, that's not what I'm asking you. Do you want to stay? And the beauty of this story is that he received her back, covered her with grace, with her children. What a redemptive response to receive. Because, see, we have to understand that being redemptive being, being forth redemptive in any way simply means that we have to understand that God is saying, I am going to save you from error or evil. And in this case, she receives this redemptive story from her husband. Had every right to leave her if he wanted to. to. He could have left her, could have used a scripture in the Bible that says that she has committed adultery against me and I'm moving on. But the beauty of God is that, that he received and voluntarily said, I will receive my wife again. See, that's what the redemptive community needs to be. See, God promises his authentic blessings for those who obey him, for those who are devoted to the covenant. God is interested in that. In the New Testament, a redemptive community means loving selfishly, selflessly, sacrificing one's life like Jesus did. A believer is one that says, I'm going to stand in the gap and love this person who's in need. That's the beauty of it. And see, relationships, that's what it takes. It's discipleship. I mean, we think about grace. I can never think of anyone else outside of Jesus than Paul. Paul often spoke about grace. 
And as we look at 2 Timothy, we're going to put our finger here in Acts, but we want to look at 2 Timothy today. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7, but before we do, we've got to look at chapter 2 as well. But I want to talk about grace, because this is what grace does, because Paul valued Timothy. He was a mentor. Timothy was a protege. He was a pastor in Ephesus. Paul was there for a couple of years helping him. As Timothy was going, he was young, wet behind the ears struggling with people around him were called false teachers, not trying to prove himself because he was young, trying to prove that someone could actually look up to him, but yet he was young. He needed to be directed. And the beauty of it is that Paul understood this, and Paul lived grace. He was saved by grace. He knew it. He knew the redemptive grace of God. He knew he was learning to be redemptive. And see, grace is this. Grace is... When we have it, we can know we can move forward. Grace means that we can make mistakes and God can still love us the same. Grace means that it's a process to grow in godliness. It's not an event. Grace means we can always get another chance, even when we're mistreated. Grace means that opportunity are for all, not just for some. Grace is offered, and when grace is offered, we receive this amazing gift from God, and we're able to use it for the glory of God. Law says this, the opposite. Law says you can't make a mistake. Law says godliness is an event. Law says don't give the ungodly a chance. Law says repay people for evil and good for good. Law says there's elitism like the Pharisees. And how often do we represent the law rather than the grace of God in relationships? What does the world think of Christianity today? See, to be redemptive is important because, see, Timothy needed to learn the grace of God. He was young. He was vulnerable. He was transparent but young. And the beauty of it is that he had the pressure to perform, the pressure from the false teachers, and the pressure to prove himself as a young man. How often do I see when young men try to prove themselves, I see it in my son or I see it in other younger people. They want to prove to older people that they can do it. But the greatest quality a young person can have is saying, I want a teachable spirit. I want to learn. I want to humble myself. Because I'll tell you, you'll grow and learn better when you're humble. When I went to Italy at 25 years old, I knew my dialect I knew Italian not as well as I would would have liked to. When I went to Italy, and I was there for three months, and came back, I was a different person in three months. I was speaking Italian well. And through it, the beauty of it was that I was sitting here, and I was saying, you know what? I had to humble myself. I had to learn. I had to work hard. People who met me on the first day, and the people who saw me again on that last day said, You're transformed. I said, it's because I was willing to learn, and I asked a lot of questions. I didn't say, oh, I know, I know, I know. I grew up there. I know how to say that. I noticed. I didn't say that. I said, I don't know how to say that. Could you teach me? I don't know how to say that. Even though I knew expressions, I still wanted to learn. Because I said, you know what? The only way for me to learn and grow is to humble myself. And even the people who helped me and took me there said, wow, Bruno, amazing. You learned so quickly. I said, well, I mean, I'm Italian, but I learned because I was willing to learn, and I grew. Italians who came here at 10, 15 years old could not speak as well as me, 
because they lost it. They didn't even speak well because in our, in our towns, we only speak dialect to each other. We don't really speak the universal language. It's like in any other culture or language. And the beauty of it is that that's what was happening. Timothy had to learn by surrendering. He had to understand. He had to grow. But here's what. How do we not grow with grace? Where is the struggle of grace? Where is the struggle? Sometimes it's in, it's in fear. Look with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to I just kind of share this with you. Before I do, I, I want to read the scripture before I give you the first point here. It says this, 2 Timothy 1, 6, and it goes into 1, 7. It says this, it says, For this reason, I remind you to fan to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. And then verse 7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. If you're there for, you know, reading your Bible, it's on page 995. And it's, it's, a, it's a passage that's so important because prior to this, prior to verse 6, I'm going to read verse 5. I am reminded for your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. See, what was happening was all this fear, all this concern, all this worry that he was working through Timothy, Paul, who was his mentor, was encouraging him in the grace of God, encouraging him about his faith, encouraging him about the foundation that was him within his grandmother and his mother, and then he was learning, it was dwelling in him. He was encouraging him to move forward. He was encouraging him to work forward. And the beauty of it was that God was using Paul to lead him in that, in that way. And through that, it was the joy of saying that, wow, even though he was fearing, God was giving him something that he had to be reminded of. Paul said this, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. See, fear in us, when fear overwhelms us, when it paralyzes us, when we're not sure of the fear or the unknown, we're not sure what's in front of us, fear starts to captivate us. But Paul was trying to remind him of that. And that grace of God that he had to have had to first be established before he could understand. And see, that's the beauty. So Paul says, I have laid my hands on you from an authority from God, an authority given to me as an apostle, that you no longer have to live by fear, but by the grace that's been given you. So be strong in the grace. Be strong in the grace. Chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace. Rekindling means to fan the flame. To set it ablaze. If there's kindles there, something that's, there's embers there, and you're trying to get the flame to go, you need to work hard, and you got to get that rekindling going. The power of the Holy Spirit in us, it's a rekindling in our hearts. And the beauty of God is that he's doing that work. But what is it that could, could start that fear in us? What are some of the ways in which living in fear can create? It creates barriers in relationships. Living in fear creates barriers in relationships. And Paul knew that. Paul understood that. That's why he was encouraging Timothy to not live by fear. I want to share with you a story of two people, John and Susan. I'm going to share Susan's part first. It says, Susan worked late evenings. At times, John would rearrange the furniture in a house. He did this primarily because he was bored so one evening, he decided to rearrange the furniture in the bedroom. 
He moved the bed and the dresser and the end tables and the lamps. I don't know about you, but maybe you millennials or younger people, you don't care about your furniture. You don't care that's rearranged. But when I was growing up, my mother rearranged uh, furniture every three months. It drove us crazy. She thought it would be something nice to do. What it drove us crazy, we didn't know. I didn't know where my dresser drawer was every three months. I didn't know if she was going to change my bed around. In fact, on the, on the night of, or the day of my father's funeral, she started rearranging the house. My wife can attest to you. Me and my brother were arguing with each other when mom was going to stop rearranging the house. She wanted us to pick all the furniture up and change all the rooms. I'm like, Mom, Dad just passed away. We just, we just had the funeral. You want to rearrange the house now? Yes. You both are here? You got to rearrange the house. I said, no. No, Mom. So we're arguing. My brother and I are like, we're like toe-to-toe, like little kids again, arguing. And I'm sitting there saying, boy. And, but it was, but she, 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 he was, uh, he rearranged the house. She's working late at night. So he does that because he's bored. Kind of remind me of my mom. He moved the bread and all. He turned off the lights and went to bed. Well, as soon as, as, as you can imagine, Susan arrives home. Not wanting to turn the lights on, she attempts to make her way in the dark. When all of a sudden, she breaks the lamp, hits her head on the dresser, and begins to scream, of course, waking up John. What just happened? Let's talk about the fear process. Susan, I have pain. I wasn't valued, or he would have asked my opinion. See, I don't know about you, but uh, he would have been a smart man knowing that the wife really is, it's really her home. I mean, I tell my wife, I just said to her yesterday, I said, so honey, is my rent raised now that we have a new home? I want to know what my rent is because I know it's your home. Do I have downstairs or not? Because I really want downstairs. I know you want the whole house and I gotta, we got to fix it up the way you want it. But just let me know if the rent is going to be raised because i got to go get another job. Because I got to make that rent. And uh, I have to know that I can't move furniture without checking with my wife. Not because she's a meanie bovini, but because simply it's her house. And I have to know that. But see, John, thinking he was bored, that wasn't the right thing to do. So she has a right to say, he didn't even ask for my opinion. I wouldn't get away with that. Now she goes, I want to be validated of my feelings and ideas and pains. She wanted to just, and he didn't do that. I fear that she will be invalidated. She fears that John will never ask for her opinion. I react. Her feelings cause her to shout and get angry. She puts him down, disparages him, hoping to change his behavior. Reactions tend to manipulate and control people to do what is desired. The external problem is not the problem. John now, let's talk about John's side. I have pain. When Susan criticizes him, he's hurt because he's, he intended well, and it was an accident. I want. He wants to be successful, sees her as an obstacle, but she, oh, she, but also wants her in the same breath. I fear. John feels like a failure. I'm a terrible husband, hurt my wife, and can't do anything right. Got to listen here now. I react. John wants his wife not to treat him like a child, needing permission to do something. He could say, it was a mistake. I didn't mean it. What do you want me to do? I'm not perfect, and neither are you. See, the core problem is not the situation, but the misdirected outlook. When our desires are not fulfilled, we are afraid of losing control. We feel this sense of being powerless. See, fear leads to codependency. What are some of our fears? Failure. What people think of me. How will they look at me? A loser? Fear of loneliness. If I make this decision, I could be alone. I don't want to be alone. Feeling devalued, 
afraid if I do the right thing, people will not value me. Being disliked. Leaders not, are not called to be popular, but are called to lead people. Mistrust. I don't trust the leadership represents my passion and my heart for the kingdom of God. And see, lastly, just losing control. We're afraid of losing control or being noticed. See, D.L. Moody said this, a great evangelist and preacher. He says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. See, this is why it's important. We have to understand that fear creates barriers in relationships. Secondly, what it does is it creates bondage in relationships. Look with me to 1 Kings 19.3. It's on page 301 in your Bible. We understand, we know the story. Elijah was a prophet. God used him to kill 450 Baal prophets. Um, fire came from heaven and killed them instantly. Uh, he was recorded as one of the greatest prophets that lived in the Old Testament period. But Jezebel came across, the king's wife heard about it. She says, you will die today. She went after him. He was afraid. And the Bible says this. It says in verse 3, it says, Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. See, he was afraid. He took off. He was afraid of the unknown that he would die. He was afraid of dying. He was afraid that Jezebel would get a hold of him. He said, Lord, he became depressed. Why would you have me to do this? Why would you have me to be a prophet, your own man, your own person, your own representative, to see that you've killed 450 false prophets, and then all of a sudden now you want me to die too? Why would you do this to me, Lord? He goes into this world of depression to the point of suicide. He wanted to die. But God saved him in the whisper he spoke to him. But there was bondage. Bondage, he was enslaved with that fear. See, this is what happens. See, fear, what it does, it pushes our buttons. Sometimes we withdraw when we're fearful. Sometimes we go into escalation. Sometimes we belittle people. Sometimes we have tantrums. Sometimes we go in denial. Sometimes we have a critical spirit. Or sometimes we just get angry. Others even are passive aggressive. That's a form of anger. And we have to understand that God was helping us that when we fear, we don't allow bondage in our relationships. We don't want it to be created. Thirdly, this is what we have to want, blame mentality syndrome. You might say, wow, that's a, is that a disease or something like that? Well, it can be in a, in a family, in a marriage. can be in any kind of relationship. Let's, look, let's go back to the original relationship of Adam and Eve. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. It's on page 3 and 4 in your Bible. After they found out and God revealed himself that they knew that they sinned and there was shame, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree that I ate. It's the woman. I'm blaming her. I'll blame her for what she did. She messed me up. Does that sound familiar? You ever find yourself husband? You ever find yourself friend, boyfriend? You're blaming your girlfriend or your wife for something they did instead of coming to grips maybe that you failed as a leader in the relationship and you could have made a decision. See, Adam failed. He didn't lead well. He could have told his wife, don't eat of it. Didn't you remember what God said? But he allowed her to lead. He was passive. And he failed in that area. But then the woman goes, don't you blame me. 
I'm going to blame the serpent. He goes, she goes, what is this that you have done? The Lord God said to the woman. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the blame syndrome, the blame mentality syndrome was created at the very beginning. It's called sin. It's called fear, afraid, hiding themselves from God. God, what we do is whenever we fail, whenever we have this fear to fail, we try to cover up. And we try to blame the other person. We try to blame people around us. We blame the world. I, I get caught up in that too. I get caught up in this world where I fail, and I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid of a reputation. I'm afraid that if someone catches me and sees me for who I truly am, a sinner in need of Christ, that sometimes I'm afraid I try to hide it or I try to blame others instead of recognizing that God is trying to do a work in me. You know, sometimes when we're afraid, we, we get up all caught up in wondering how we need the redemption of God. Now, I recall of a time when um, I was at seminary, and I was afraid because my wife and I had some savings we went down, and in about two years, it was all depleted. And we brought a pretty good size savings now. Our savings account was, was packed. It was good. But when we went down there, we saw that the money was gone. I was told that if you don't come with the money next semester, you, would have, you won't be able to go to classes. You won't be able to take classes. We're going to have to remove you from the list. You will have to leave the school. You have to come up with your money. And it was about $2,500. I didn't have a good paying job. It was a job, but it was a very low paying job in Dallas. But I had to work full time and go to school full time. So I had to have it. I went into my office and shut the door and started uh, having it out with God. Started raising my voice. Started putting my fist up in there and saying, how in the world would you call me down here to fail? Why would you do that, Lord? 1,500 miles with my wife and kids, and now I'm going to fail? You're allowing this to happen. Lord, you can't do this to me, Lord. And as I'm doing that, I'm bowing down before the Lord and confessing sin. But I had to have it out. I had to share my fear. I had to share that I was going to fail, and I was scared, and I was wondering. I was like, Lord, what are you going to do? And I went to church that time, and I was talking to a guy. And a guy was talking with me, and I'm sharing my struggle with him. Walk home, work with it. Eight weeks later, I have to go in front of these people. And they call me in. And they said, Bruno, there's a credit on your account for $2,500. I said, I paid that account last time. Don't you tell me to do that. I got all angry because I was afraid again. He goes, no, 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 Bruno. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He goes, a credit. I said, oh, I had a Rocky Balboa moment. Okay, a credit. Okay, a credit. That means, wait a minute, someone paid for it? He goes, yes. Could, I, could you tell me who it was? And he told me. It was the guy I told that story to at the church. God delivered us to get through the next semester. And over and over and over again, month after month, we saw thousands of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars. I kid you not, my wife can attest you of God coming through. Well, we didn't know where our money was coming, but that Lord showed me that he says, I will redeem you. You are my servant. This is my message, my gospel. I've called you here. Do not worry. Do not fear. I'm with you. I've given you not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Get a hold of yourself, son. It's not about you. And through that, I had to learn that God had to get me through understanding of the beauty that I can't blame anyone but my fear to trust God. And see, 
Paul was trying to tell Timothy, you don't have to have a spirit of fear. Do not worry. God's called you. I've placed my hand on you, approved by God. You are approved to do what God's called you. He's called you out of the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light of your son. He's given you that gift. Fan that flame, son. You have a gift from God. He's called you to be a pastor. It's a gift. Now go pastor your people and don't be afraid. I've given you that grace, God says, and I'm going to carry you through it in the process. Don't allow fear to overwhelm you. And the beauty of it is that God even had Paul give him three fear busters. I call them fear busters. Number one is this. The power of the Holy Spirit crushes fear. You got to understand that when it says in verse 7 that for God has gave, gave us a spirit, the Holy Spirit, not a fear, but of power, dunamis power to carry us through, a dunamis power that carries us through the difficult times. God has given it. Look at verse, uh, verse 14 as well in 2 Timothy 1.14. It says, but the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That means he's saying, Timothy, it's been entrusted to you by God. He'll guard it. It's a good deposit. It's the Holy Spirit. He's in you. He will lead you through your fear. God is going to use our fear, our struggles, our difficulties, our trials, our fears, and he will use them to bring glory and honor to his name. You and I have got to understand that. Don't be afraid to fail, but don't be afraid to fear because God wants to use that. I'm going to tell you, most of my, if not all my testimonies came through because I was afraid most of the time. You might say, wait a minute, Bruno, you're a pastor. Why are you sharing this? Because I, I, I'm afraid at times. And I'm being transparent and vulnerable with you because I'm human. And when I don't know where something's going to go, I'm concerned. I'm afraid if we go down this path, I don't know what's going to happen. But I must trust that God is good and faithful to himself to his name, to his word, to his message, to his son. So guess what? If I'm in Christ, then he's going to be faithful to me because I'm in Christ. So when he sees me, he sees approved because he sees Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm approved because of Bruno. And see, we have to understand that. We have to grab that. We got to just focus on that mentality, that redemptive spirit will carry us through. When we know we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, we're going to be redemptive toward others. Secondly, this, the love of God casts out fear. You're familiar with this passage uh, on page 1023 in your Bible. If you're there, uh, it's, it's a similar passage to many of you have been in Christ. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in fear. Let me tell you something. How do we as parents sometimes, I'm going to say in front of my kids, sometimes I parent out of fear. Sometimes I want to just say, don't do this. You know what's going to happen if you do this. And my children are like, all right, Dad, I understand. No, 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 no. And I'm afraid something's going to happen to them. So I'm afraid and I start to try to manipulate them with fear. And God is saying, you got to let that go, son. I had to deal with that with my first child. I had to let go. I didn't want her to make mistakes. And we saw God do a redemptive work because I had to get out of the way. God said to me, son, I love you, but you got to get out of the way. I'm, his, I'm her God. I will take care of her. I said, Lord, she, she's yours. Just let me get out of the way. 
I saw God do an amazing work because then her heart was captivated by the Lord. And I had to get out of the way. I had to stop manipulating my child with fear and motivate her with faith. And the beauty was God started doing that through me and through my wife. We saw God's redemptive grace in our relationship with our daughter. She can attest of it. But the beauty of it is it helped me with my other children. And the beauty of it is that we're not perfect. That's why grace says I can still make mistakes and God is merciful to carry me through them. Because as parents, we can make mistakes, but God can do a work in us. Lastly, this. The disciplined mind confines fear. The sound mind, the prudent self-discipline, self-control, it's, it's the idea of auto-control, derives through the surrendering to the Holy Spirit. See, that's what it means. Like here, even in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it's on page 998. Chapter Titus 2.2, 2. it says older men, older women, younger men, younger women. But here in, the, in chapter 2, verse 2, it just says older men. It just follows through. It says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's the beauty of God. We need to be self-controlled. That's the fruit of the Spirit. We need to have that. Through that, we can grow. Through that, we can see that God can, through a disciplined mind, we can, we can really truly understand and grow. You know, I love, I love movies. I love movies because they have cool messages. And this particular movie uh, a clip I'm going to show you is Christmas with the Cranks. You guys ever watch that movie? It's a cool movie. It's a fun movie. I like Tim Allen. He's a fun guy. Santa Claus. I still like watching all those Santa Clauses. I watch them a hundred times over, and they're just fun. But I love his, but he plays the part of a father, and Jamie Lee Curtis plays the part of the wife and the mother, and they have this community, and they are involved in, you know, decorating, putting out Frosty, making the community look like a true Christmas community. Well, one, this particular time, they wanted to go on a cruise. They wanted to forget Christmas, forget celebrating, because every year they would have the Christmas Eve party at their house. Their daughter went off to, to Peace Corps, so they thought, this is the opportunity. Let's do something for ourselves. So the Scrooge, Tim Allen, he was playing, he was playing the Scrooge. He didn't want to do anything, so he's telling everybody, no Christmas. He writes it out to his workers, and, he's saying, and they're all giving him a hard time. The community's giving them a hard time, and Jamie Lee Curtis is trying to hide. She's playing that part. She's trying to hide from the community, and they're getting ready for this. Then Blair, their daughter, calls and says, we're coming home. What do you mean you're coming home? You're coming home for Christmas. Are we going to have the party? Is everything going to be working out? And obviously, if you know the, the movie and you know the storyline, uh, they had to get together in a matter of probably two hours to put this together. But they mistreated the community. And then Dan Aykroyd, who plays a great part, uh, was trying to get them to play that part. And so I want to just share this little clip with you. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Luther here was up on the roof putting up Frosty and then they both fell off. Coming through. Well, I thought you were skipping Christmas this year, Mr. Crank. Yeah, what about that? What's going on there, Luther? Blair's coming home for Christmas. Blair's coming home for Christmas. She's bringing her boyfriend. And she's bringing her boyfriend? And she expects to see a Christmas tree? Yeah. And a Frosty? Of course. 
And what about the annual Crank's Christmas Eve party? That too. Okay, when does she get in? Plane arrives about eight o'clock. Eight? Oh. All right, people, listen up, gather around. We're about to have a party here at the Cranks. A Christmas homecoming for Blair. Drop what you're doing and pitch in. Nora, do you have a turkey? Um, smoked trout. Smoked trout. Smoked trout. Anybody got a turkey? We have two, both in the oven. Okay, beautiful. Get him. Ned, get over to Brixley's. Get his frosty. Get some lights too. We'll put him along Luther's box boxwoods here. Oh, oh, hold on. Why should we do this for him? Yeah. 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 Luther's a jerk. Regardless of how you feel about Luther, I know a lot of you have mixed feelings about him now. But we're a community. And the people in a community stick together. Even if one of them has been behaving for most of the holiday season like a spoiled, selfish little yeah. baby. We're not doing this for him. Doing this for Blair. Blair, who used to babysit all your kids. Blair, who comes home every summer and makes us all feel like family. Yes, that's right. Why should the daughter pay for the sins of the father? Okay, now if we even have a hope of pulling this off, you gotta scatter. Get home. Grab a change of clothes. Grab all the food you can and get over here in half an hour. Let's go. Thank you. Guys, better go to the airport. Where's that? Blair needs a ride home. I don't know if we could do that. Shall I call the chief? Uh, we, we could do that. <laughs> All right. Well, let me just share with you that that's a fun reminder of community. I know that this, this message there is really quite clear. Community is necessary. You see what Dan Aykroyd in playing his part was doing. He was saying, we're not doing it for Luther. We're doing it for Blair. When you see someone else who's mistreated you and you and I are called to be redemptive, we're not doing it for that person. We're doing it for Jesus. And the beauty of it is that we have to. It may hurt us. It may be overwhelming. We might say, but we got to get through it and say yes, because I believe that being redemptive is standing in the gap for the unlovable, the unreachable, and the unforgivable. If we're going to reach people who are far away from God, we've got to learn to love each other well. And by doing so, the beauty of God is present. But we can't allow fear to consume us. We can't allow fear to bring us to where we're in bondage, in a barrier, or we're blaming others. So I want to encourage you, as, as the worship team's coming up, I want to encourage you, what are you fearing? What's stopping you from seeing the grace of God? What's, what's stopping you from understanding and knowing what it means to know Christ, to walk with God, to be redemptive today? I want you to know that there might be a fear in your life that you're not aware of, I know that when God was doing a work in me, he was doing one that was necessary and continues to. So I want to pray. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment and pray and see if God's doing that work in you. There may be something. Let God be the one to reveal that to you. And as you do, be open to what God may share with you today. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for reminding us about being redemptive as a community people. 
Lord, what are our fears that are stopping us from being more redemptive? What are our fears, Lord, that are stopping us from seeing your redemptive grace in us? Help us, God, today, we pray. Open our hearts in Jesus' name, amen.